Chapter 15 of Scenes from Sketches by Bars. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sketches by Boz by Charles Dickens. Illustrations by George Cruikshank. Chapter 15 of Scenes. Early Coaches. We have often wondered how many months incessant travelling in a post-chase it would take to kill a man, and wondering by analogy, we should very much like to know how many months of constant travelling in a succession of early coaches an unfortunate mortal could endure. Breaking a man alive upon the wheel would be nothing to breaking his rest, his peace, his heart, everything but his fast, upon four. And the punishment of Ixion, the only practical person, by the by, who has discovered the secret of the perpetual motion, would sink into utter insignificance before the one we have suggested. If we had been a powerful churchman in those good times when blood was shed as freely as water, and men were mowed down like grass in the sacred cause of religion, we would have lain by very quietly till we got hold of some especially obstinate miscreant, who positively refused to be converted to our faith, and then we would have booked him for an inside place in a small coach, which travelled day and night, and securing the remainder of the places for stout men with a slight tendency to coughing and spitting, we would have started him forth on his last travels, leaving him mercilessly to all the tortures which the waiters, landlords, coachmen, guards, boots, chambermaids, and other familiars on his line of road might think proper to inflict. Who has not experienced the miseries inevitably consequent upon a summons to undertake a hasty journey? You receive an intimation from your place of business, wherever that may be, or whatever you may be, that it will be necessary to leave town without delay. You and your family are forthwith thrown into a state of tremendous excitement. An express is immediately dispatched to the washerwoman's. Everybody is in a bustle, and you, yourself, with a feeling of dignity which you cannot altogether conceal, sally forth to the booking-office to secure your place. Here, a painful consciousness of your own unimportance first rushes on your mind. The people are as cool and collected as if nobody were going out of town, or as if a journey of a hundred-odd miles were a mere nothing. You enter a mouldy-looking room, ornamented with large posting-bills, the greater part of the place enclosed behind a huge lumbering rough counter, and fitted up with recesses that look like the dens of the smaller animals in a travelling menagerie, without the bars. Some half-dozen people are booking brown-paper parcels, which one of the clerks flings into the aforesaid recesses with an air of recklessness which you, remembering the new carpet-bag you bought in the morning, feel considerably annoyed at. Porters, looking like so many atlases, keep rushing in and out with large packages on their shoulders, and while you are waiting to make the necessary inquiries, you wonder what on earth the booking-office clerks can have been before they were booking-office clerks. One of them, with his pen behind his ear and his hands behind him, is standing in front of the fire like a full-length portrait of Napoleon. The other, with his hat half off his head, enters the passengers' names in the books with a coolness which is inexpressibly provoking. And the villain whistles, actually whistles, while a man asks him what the fare is outside all the way to Hollyhead, in frosty weather too. They are clearly an isolated race, evidently possessing no sympathies of feeling in common with the rest of mankind. Your turns comes at last, and having paid the fare, you tremblingly inquire, What time will it be necessary for me to be here in the morning? Six o'clock, replies the whistler, carelessly pitching the sovereign you've just parted with into a wooden bowl on the desk. Rather before than after. 
adds the man with the semi-roasted unmentionables, with just as much ease and complacency as if the whole world got out of bed at five. You turn into the street, ruminating as you bend your steps homeward on the extent to which men become hardened in cruelty by custom. If there be one thing in existence more miserable than another, it most unquestionably is the being compelled to rise by candlelight. If ever you doubted the fact, you are painfully convinced of your error on the morning of your departure. You have left strict orders overnight to be called at half-past four, and you have done nothing all night but doze for five minutes at a time, and start up suddenly from a terrific dream of a large church clock, with a small hand running round with astonishing rapidity to every figure on the dial-plate. At last, completely exhausted, you fall gradually into a refreshing sleep. Your thoughts grow confused. The stagecoaches, which have been going off before your eyes all night, become less and less distinct, until they go off altogether. One moment you are driving with all the skill and smartness of an experienced whip, the next you are exhibiting, a la Ducrot, on the off-leader, anon you are closely muffled up inside, and have just recognised in the person of the guard an old schoolfellow, whose funeral, even in your dream, you remember to have attended eighteen years ago. At last you fall into a state of complete oblivion, from which you are aroused, as if into a new state of existence, by a singular illusion. You are apprenticed to a trunk-maker, how, or why, or when, or wherefore, you don't take the trouble or inquire. But there you are, pasting the lining in the lid of a portmanteau. Confound that other apprentice in the back shop! How he's hammering! Rap, rap, rap! What an industrious fellow he must be! You've heard him at work for half an hour past, and he has been hammering incessantly the whole time. Rap, rap, rap again! He's talking now. What's that he said? Five o'clock? You make a violent exertion and start up in bed. The vision is at once dispelled. The trunk-maker's shop is your own bedroom, and the other apprentice your shivering servant, who's been vainly endeavouring to wake you for the last quarter of an hour, at the imminent risk of breaking either his own knuckles or the panels of the door. You proceed to dress yourself with all possible dispatch. The flaring flat candle with the long snuff gives light enough to show that the things you want are not where they ought to be, and you undergo a trifling delay in consequence of having carefully packed up one of your boots in your over-anxiety of the preceding night. You soon complete your toilet, however, for you are not particular on such an occasion, and you shaved yesterday evening. So, mounting your Petersham greatcoat and green travelling shawl, and grasping your carpet-bag in your right hand, you walk lightly downstairs, lest you should awaken any of the family, and after pausing in the common sitting-room for one instant, just to have a cup of coffee, the said common sitting-room looking remarkably comfortable, with everything out of its place and strewed with the crumbs of last night's supper, you undo the chain and bolts of the street door and find yourself fairly in the street. A thaw by all that is miserable. The frost is completely broken up. You look down the long perspective of Oxford Street, the gaslights mournfully reflected on the wet pavement, and can discern no speck in the road to encourage the belief that there is a cab or a coach to be had. The very coachmen have gone home in despair. The cold sleet is drizzling down with that gentle regularity which betokens a duration of four and twenty hours at least. The damp hangs upon the housetops and lampposts and clings to you like an invisible cloak. The water is coming in in every area. The pipes have burst. The water butts are running over. The kennels seem to be doing matches against time. Pump handles descend of their own accord. Horses in market carts fall down, and there's no one to help them up again. Policemen look as if they have been carefully sprinkled with powdered glass. Here and there, a milkwoman trudges slowly along with a bit of list round each foot to keep her from slipping. 
boys who don't sleep in the house and are not allowed much sleep out of it can't wake their masters by thundering at the shop door and cry with the cold. The compound of ice, snow and water on the pavement is a couple of inches thick. Nobody ventures to walk fast to keep himself warm and nobody could succeed in keeping himself warm if he did. It strikes a quarter past five as you trudge down Waterloo Place on your way to the Golden Cross, and you discover for the first time that you were called about an hour too early. You have not time to go back, there is no place open to go into, and you have therefore no resource but to go forward, which you do, feeling remarkably satisfied with yourself and everything about you. You arrive at the office and look wistfully up the yard for the Birmingham High Flyer, which, for aught you can see, may have flown away altogether, for no preparations appear to be on foot for the departure of any vehicle in the shape of a coach. You wander into the booking office, which, with the gas lights and a blazing fire, looks quite comfortable by contrast. That is to say, if any place can look comfortable at half-past five on a winter's morning. There stands the identical bookkeeper, in the same position as if he had not moved since you saw him yesterday. As he informs you that the coach is up at the yard and will be brought round in about a quarter of an hour, you leave your bag and repair to the tap, not with any absurd idea of warming yourself because you feel such a result to be utterly hopeless, but for the purpose of procuring some hot brandy and water, which you do when the kettle boils, an event which occurs exactly two minutes and a half before the time fixed for the starting of the coach. The first stroke of six peals from St Martin's Church steeple just as you take the first sip of the boiling liquid. You'll find yourself at the booking office in two seconds, and the tap-waiter finds himself much comforted by your brandy and water in about the same period. The coach is out, the horses are in, and the guard and two or three porters are stowing the luggage away and running up the steps of the booking office and down the steps of the booking office with breathless rapidity. The place, which a few moments ago was so still and quiet, is now all bustle, and early vendors of the morning papers have arrived, and you are assailed on all sides with shouts of, Times, gentlemen, times! Here, crun, 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 Harold, ma'am, highly interesting murder, gentlemen. Curious case of breach of the promise, ladies. The inside passengers are already in their dens, and the outsides, with the exception of yourself, are pacing up and down the pavement to keep themselves warm. They consist of two young men with very long hair, to which the sleet has communicated the appearance of crystallised rat's tails, one thin young woman, cold and peevish, one old gentleman, ditto, ditto, and something in a cloak and cap intended to represent a military officer. Every member of the party, with a large stiff shawl over his chin, looking exactly as if he were playing a set of Pan's pipes. "'Take off the cloths, Bob,' says the coachman, who now appears for the first time in a rough blue greatcoat, of which the buttons behind are so far apart that you can't see them both at the same time. "'Now, gentlemen,' cries the guard, with the waybill in his hand, five minutes behind time already!' Up jump the passengers two young men smoking like lime kilns, and the old gentleman grumbling audibly. The thin young woman is got upon the roof, by dint of a great deal of pulling and pushing and helping and trouble, and she repays it by expressing her solemn conviction that she will never be able to get down again. All right, sings out the guard at last, jumping up as the coach starts and blowing his horn directly afterwards in proof of the soundness of his wind. Let him go, Harry, give him their heads, cries the coachman. And off we start, as briskly as if the morning were all right, as well as the coach, and looking forward as anxiously to the termination of our journey, as we fear our readers will have done long since, to the conclusion of our paper. End of chapter 15 of Scenes from Sketches by Boz